0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. All right. Welcome to the Think About It podcast. I'm uh, your host, uh, Uli Baer. And as you know, you can find the podcast on the uh, New Books Network or on Spotify, iTunes, etc., where all the podcasts are available. And I'm really excited to have a guest today from Columbia University, Professor Roosevelt Montas. So first of all, Roosevelt, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Ulrich. Really, really great to be here with you.
0: And I want to introduce you sort of maybe going a bit backwards from your most recent book, which is called Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation, which is your account of, I guess, your encounter with four thinkers, Plato, Augustine, Freud, and Gandhi. And it's your kind of intellectual biography, sort of a bit of a story about yourself. Uh, and also as the director of the Center for the Poor Curriculum at Columbia College, which is part of Columbia University, for ten years, from two thousand eight to two thousand eighteen, has developed and unfolded education, the access to
1: ideas, and a kind of intellectual identity and life of the mind that books afforded me, really has been the key to a kind of liberation, a kind of um, a kind of freedom from. <clears throat> certain kinds of material constraints, certain kinds of ideological constraints, and certain kinds of political constraints. That is the liberatory power of literacy and reading and education is quite evident in my book, as it is in Douglass's life. And in part, why I wrote the book is to defend the notion and practice of liberal education as an education in freedom. Liberal education as a kind of education that is given to a student, not because it helps them get a better job, not because it helps them be more marketable, not because it gives them a particular set of skills, even though it does all of those things. It's given not because of that, but it's given because it is a kind of education that most fully allows an individual to live the life of freedom. It is a kind of education that is appropriate to an individual who is free. And what I mean by freedom is an individual who has the task and the unavoidable task and responsibility of organizing his or her life according to some notion of what is good, according to some notion of the human good. Um, Each one of us has to organize and shape our lives with some view of what kind of life is most most worthwhile living. And a liberal education is one that is aimed explicitly, self-consciously, at equipping you to make those decisions and to make that building of a life the most free and the most productive. Um, so I tell the story of kind of how my education fed into my own sense of self, my own sense of this life I have, I have constructed. I, I'm an immigrant, came to the United States from the Dominican Republic as a 12 as year old boy, child, teenager, preteen, um, poor, not speaking English, Um, really on the margins of economic, cultural, political American society. Um, And I've gone through a process of sort of integration, but also building of a life and education, reading. And these four authors that I discussed have been quite decisive in the way that I have put together a life. So this book is an argument for why education like that matters, especially for people like me from marginalized communities and how In this one instance, certain of those of those authors played a key role in uh, in my, my own
0: development. It's very powerful the way you frame that to to talk about how education can be a way to find and enact one's own freedom. And if you maybe can say a little bit more about that. You arrived. You are arrive, you know you come from the Dominican Republic and then you go to Columbia College and you tell the story of how these encounters which, which with great thought, which is ultimately what Douglas recounts in his book as well, give you a sense of self that is sort of determined by yourself and not over determined by other things. You also said you are from a marginalized community or have the immigrant experience. So those things are kind of interacting. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, There's often a kind of a view that people from economically disadvantaged or underprivileged backgrounds should be steered towards educations that are super practical, professional, market-based, that the kind of cultivation and reflection on philosophical ideas on literature and art, that this is kind of a luxury of the elite. Um, And it is, that idea is so insidious and so poisonous. And it is an idea that has a deep pedigree in a tradition of educating working class people for obedience, for docility, for not asking questions. Um, So part of what I hope the book does and my story does is to say, look, um, people from marginalized communities, especially benefit and are especially in need of precisely the kind of education that focuses on political agency and personal freedom writ large. Um, an education for thinking, an education for asking questions, an education for critically examining the social structures and the history of society that has put us in the place that we are, and that and, and to deny access or steer away um, individuals, especially from those communities, from this type of education is it's nearly criminal. Um, so again, you know, just quite personally, um, the ideas that I encounter in this book. I, I took very personally. you know, I, I I the first chapter of my book talks about reading St. Augustine's Confessions in my freshman year of college at Columbia and a required course. So the whole freshman class was reading St. Augustine's Confessions at the same time I was. And it was at a moment in my life when I was struggling with kind of religious identity in high school after coming to the United States, I had had a very powerful, transformative religious experience. I was, I had become, become evangelical, kind of fundamentalist Christian, and by the time I was beginning college, I was beginning to take a second look at that and to try to understand that experience in my life, understand my relationship to Christianity, to the to the religious questions about uh, it, it embedded in a religious life, God, my relationship with God. <clears throat> um, and reading Augustine was such a powerful experience for me because it was the first time that I read an intellectual who was also a believer, um, an intellectual who did not see faith as opposed to rationality, and who could not accept a faith that asked him to compromise his own perception of of rational truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And Augustine, for me, didn't like reaffirm my faith or revitalize my faith. On the contrary, it gave me permission to pursue my intellectual uh, life and um, my questions to, with absolute honesty um, and work out my own relationship to the big questions, apart from the ideological inheritance that I was bringing in. Uh, I know people for whom Augustine converted them to Christianity, turned them into a Christian. That's not what he did for me, but <clears throat> the point of these books sort and of a liberal education is not to turn you into something, except to turn you more to yourself, um, to construct, to allow you, give you tools to construct for yourself um a a life that most fully expresses your authentic sense of uh of what the world is and how you fit in it um and the same goes for plato and for freud and for for gandhi each of those authors um gave me really critical elements of the uh design of what my life would become
0: it's interesting when you said i want to go back to one thing you said earlier that there's an idea that liberal education, let's say reading philosophy or the classics is kind of a luxury. It's kind of an elite exercise for people who have everything and just sort of need to ponder their lives in the evening. And you said there's a political dimension to keep people in their place in a way. You said to, to, to yeah. educate them in docility, acquiescence, and sort of say, I'm, I'm fine with my lot and I'm just gonna try to make, make my life work every day. Can yeah. you say a little bit more about how you came into Colombia? And Colombia is interesting because this was imposed on you in a way. You didn't have a choice. You didn't right. seek, seek out a class on Augustine, right? You right. had to just read that book. Right, right.
1: Um, in the Dominican Republic, if I had been in the Dominican Republic, I and would have gone to college, which people in my generation were beginning to beginning to do. My parents didn't. My, parents, my father did a six has a sixth grade education. My mother did some high school while i was a, a child kind of in, in night school um but my generation was beginning to go to college and and if i had stayed in the dominican republic i would I almost certainly have been an engineer or a lawyer or a physician um most likely an engineer because that w- that was seen as kind of the most practical um the most practical thing and the idea um that that's what education is for that education is about doing things and particular, particularly professional education. If you think about it, well, the Greeks drew a distinction between liberal studies, studies that concern freedom and servile studies, studies that, conf- that, that, that concern uh, uh, a craft or an occupation. Um, and that is non-liberal education. So it is valuable especially it is valuable for people who do not come from privilege. Like it is important, empowering and appropriate that such students have access to education that allow them to get out of poverty. Um, problem comes when we think that that's it. That's what education, that's merely what education is. It denies and in some sense violates the humanity, mm-hmm. the potential of individuals. Um, there is, in my view, a sort of inherent impulse towards freedom and self-determination in every, in every individual. And a liberal education recognizes that, honors that, works and aims itself at that. Um, one thing I like to emphasize is that I'm not arguing for liberal education instead of a practical education but for liberal education as the foundation of a practical education. If you do want to become just a professional academic the way I did, sure, you can can do that. But that's not the point. The point is that whether you're a lawyer or an engineer or a businessman or a computer programming programmer or even a plumber, that whatever occupation you do, your education in that craft is rooted and emerges from an immersion into the fundamental human questions that we all have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, if you're going to get to the highest levels of achievement of any profession, it is those questions that you're going to be tackling it with. Those questions lie at the forefront of any profession, of, of any craft. Um, so, you know, the, 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 even today you see this. I've worked with high school students every summer who are low income, first generation. And I'm always struck by how much in our educational system channels them towards STEM fields. If you're a good student in an urban school, low income, and you, and, and you have some kind of aptitude for studying, there's all there are all these mechanisms to channel you mm-hmm. into away from liberal education, away into an education and just doing things. Um, and again, it's not that there's anything wrong with that. That's necessary, but you need an education not just in doing things, you need an education in thinking about stuff.
0: Let me ask you something here. So, when students are steered into STEM fields, and for the reason that you said is a legitimate reason to say this is a career that pays well, you'll have, there's a lot of need for it, you can improve society. But you said that liberal education gets us in touch with or activates something you said is innate to human beings freedom, the mm-hmm. sense of freedom, self determination. What mm-hmm. I'm really curious if you can say a little bit more about that it's both innate to us the sense of freedom the sense of self or dignity and at the same time it can or has to be awakened in us there mm-hmm. seems to be a strange relation because we have that when you were a 12 year old boy you came to america you moved yeah to six yeah. years later you go to columbia college and you know who you were you knew and it's not like yeah. you could have said oh this teenager didn't know what freedom would have meant, but you still needed to be brought into yourself to activate that or? Yeah. <clears throat> There's a passage in,
1: in Plato's Republic in which Socrates says to his interlocutors, you know, education is not what people think it is. Like putting knowledge in, in, into people the way that you might put like sight in blind eyes education actually takes for granted that sight is there but that it's looking in the wrong direction um, and education is the art of turning the whole soul in the in the right direction so that it sees truth in the, in the way that, that Plato puts it and I think that that's really profoundly true true education is all, always involves a new true liberal education which is what I mean by education always involves a reorientation and a clarification of what you really know or think or are. Um, it's like, well, again, Plato had this theory that all knowledge is by recollection, that when you know something truly, you are simply realizing that you already knew it. And there's something very true about that. I mean, even if you take you know, math, two plus two is four, somebody pointed that out to you and then you saw it. If you didn't see it, it could not be taught to you. You could memorize it. Mm -hmm. but you could not learn and once you see it you can't unsee it Mm -hmm. once you see it then you can't deny you can't say okay you know what two plus two is five you can say that verbally but you can't believe it because you have already perceived that reality self-knowledge and education in its deepest sense is always like that it involves clarity about what has always been there Mm -hmm. but which you were not attuned to it is a kind of uh bringing into alignment your capacity to perceive with what has been already there. Uh, like when you walk into a dark room and it takes a few a few seconds or minutes for your eyes to adjust and see what's already there, education is very much like that is it as an it is an awakening onto the things that are already there. And of course that that deepens you and and, and one evolves. I don't want to give the impression that we are static beings. Uh, we, we're always evolving. We're always, um, <clears throat> the landscape always changing to use kind of the you know, the light metaphor. You're looking at a, the landscape during sunset and it just evolves and it's something, it becomes something else as the light changes and what you're looking at it.
0: So, so in your book, which is organized in sort of introduction and four chapters. So Augustine, Plato, Freud, Gandhi. In Plato, if I follow what you just said, so there's a knowledge um, that's there and, we can become attuned to it or as you said in this metaphor sight can be directed toward it and in plato that would ultimately be then what we would call the truth and if i can shift you just because it's such a great constellation of authors and so the freud chapter you said something right in a minute ago You said you have to become attuned to it it's in you but you're not aware of it and you talked in the freud chapter how freud showed up as a reference in a summer course and then you start reading it and then you actually Go into psychoanalysis with the caveat that this may not be the, the whole solution to mental suffering and all that, but yeah. if we stay with the idea that Plato gives you the sense, I will, you will become attuned to the truth. Mm-hmm. Freud is a little bit different, or he's more interested. Why are we so out of tune with ourselves? So, so why yeah. are we not actually aware of who we are? Why is there something in us that we have yeah. to? Cover? Yeah. I mean, Freud tells
1: you that the truth is going to be a lot weirder you imagine and a lot weirder than plato imagined. yes um and that the truth about yourself is often something that we're running away from um that is so freud gets you to suspect your own accounts of yourself and to try to um try to perceive kind of around the corner of your certainties Uh, ultimately psychoanalysis is a is a systematic program of self-exploration and of destabilizing the traditional uncomplicated sense of I am fully present and fully in in, 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 in view to myself. I am who I think myself to be. Mm-hmm. I am transparent to myself. Freud I think demonstrates irrefutably demonstrates beyond um, I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in Freud that's off that's kind of wrong, et cetera. But this point, which is a central feature of Freud's, I think Freud uh, demonstrates beyond doubt that you are in fact a mystery to yourself. Um, and that there are vast areas of selfhood, of mental activity, of personal beingness, of myself that are actually occluded from me, and that through systematic investigation, I can make some headway into them. I can discover things about myself that I didn't know about, that, that I didn't know before by paying attention um so freud added a whole new dimension to the socratic injunction that the unexamined life is not worth living what an examined life would mean i think after freud is a fundamentally more complex and um there's a whole a whole dimension there that's not in that that's not in in that's not worked out in plato that that i think freud taps into
0: and if in the Freudian model, we uncover something about ourselves that surprises, often startles us, sometimes disturbs us, it, what is the self that is then uncovered? Or is there a sense in which you think, and sort of your own, your own going through psychoanalysis, is, it doesn't seem to me like he wants to get you to a stable ground, and then once you've done that, you've done the work then you know yourself you are identical to yourself you have this authentic sense and you're done and Freud is yeah. very unending about it right
1: right there is absolutely something unending about it um thank god because if you if you if, if you uh the moment you start growing you're you're dead the moment you if, if you think you have figured it all out there's no more room for uh, growth and there's no more freedom in fact um you're already locked into some predetermined uh, configuration of what and who you are. Which let's, um, let's, I just yeah. want to
0: emphasize what you just said. It's, it's a very Freudian idea that if you figured everything out for Freud, that's stasis, that's immobility, that's death. But you said yeah. there's also no freedom in that. And actually yeah. freedom isn't found as this fact or this knowledge and say, this is my freedom. But what you're saying, if you, have, you think you've figured it out you actually don't have freedom.
1: Yes, I, you know in, 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 uh, to adapt something that Emerson said, but I think it applies to Freud, all truths about the self are initial and none are final. Um, truths are initial, they're starting points for new vistas. They're, they're, they're new grounds upon which you can stand and look out from. Um, the difference between education, liberal education and religion is that religion purports to give you to give you the answers? Uh, religion or an ideology. Religion is one, you know, particular brand of ideology, where you already know the answer before you've encountered the questions. You already know the answer regardless of what the the investigation of the subject reveals. Um, the investigation of the subject can only legitimate, can only reinforce, can only substantiate what you already know, um, and that is yeah i think that is that that is a curtailment it is a restriction it is a deadening Mm -hmm. of this capacity for improvisation for freedom for growth for change for flux um
0: yeah and if emerson this idea that the 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 self is the discovery of the self is is initial it's a beginning of something new Religion would be a counter. What about politics, where actually identities are sometimes marshaled to create solidarity or alliances to sort of say, "I am a, I am an American, or I belong to this group, I identify myself yeah. as such, as a as a way to stabilize something, to say others can identify or right. counter to that." So I just, right, yeah, it al- always becomes problematic. Um, you know
1: Benedict Arnold, Arnold, the great kind of theorist of, of nationalism, has this phrase "imagined communities." That communities are in some way fictions; they're in some way imagined; they're in some way um, abstractions that we create and we sign up to through a kind of suspended disbelief. Um, my old teacher Gayatri Spivak of Columbia has a phrase that captures this, I think, quite lucidly. She uses the phrase "strategic essentialism." that sometimes in political activity you strategically deploy a kind of essentialism a kind of let's make believe that we are the same let's make believe that we are part of this collective identity in order to be to mobilize collective will collective power um and um, you can see that And, and in fact all political movements even you know bad ones that lead to oppressive fascistic genocidal mobilizations <clears throat> and good ones that you know organizing against slavery as as Douglas did you know the abolitionist movement in America <clears throat> a mass mobilization against this moral outrage all mass mobilizations involve this kind of strategic essentialism and some people don't see the strategic they only see the essentialism mm-hmm. um, and that that will almost always end in, end in trouble um, when people subsume their own their thinking, they subsume their individuality, they subsume their capacity or ability or willingness to question the consensus, um, you, I think, head down a bad road.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Gayatri Spivak, who's a your teacher and also your colleague at Columbia University, when she says it's strategic essentialism, and then who is the person or who, how do you decide? this is going too far this locks people in rather than enables them so if you think about the great freedom movements in this country so you start with you know the sort of first of all indigenous protest against you know sort of colonial rule you have the african american struggle for abolition then you have the women's uh, you know fight for the vote and political emancipation and at what moment do these movements in Gayatri Spivak's idea, you have to essentialize this identity for the moment, even though people are from so many different backgrounds, they maybe don't share one thing except this idea that we deserve to be equal and free. Yeah. And at what moment does it tip into this becomes a constraint? And I think what's interesting about what you're saying, where we are now in, around the globe in these cultural and political movements that people yeah. sort of, identify with groups and then they sometimes find themselves sort of backed into a corner and say this group right. is not existing <laughs> other, other identities.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can see the dangers in that, in the way in which American progressive, the extreme progressive American left has become in some corners just kind of shrill and hysterical and intolerant and illiberal, right? Kind of taking liberal commitments to an illiberal place where then you are no longer willing to talk, willing to debate, willing to um, engage in in, ide- in intellectual combat with opposing views, but you merely fall back into censoring opposing views. Mm-hmm. Right? So you see that. <clears throat> I pointed out on the left because that's kind of my tribe. That's where I live. <laughs> you don't even need to talk about the right because that's kind of it's so endemic and so characteristic of the of, of the right the right end of the the spectrum, uh, but you see that it is and it is when the strategic and strategic essentialism gets gets lost sight of, and of course the first to go is the intellectual, mm-hmm. um, the intellectual whose job it is to raise the difficult questions, to um, to not go along with the with the mass enthusiasm to um, you know, raise the embarrassing issues and be skeptical about the consensus. Um, that is the job of the intellectual and it's a dangerous
0: job. Yeah, and I, I, listening to you, I'm thinking, do you think people get concerned that intellectuals and people like us, and we kind of over Examine everything, and then we keep on saying, "Well, you know, what is really the ground here?" And there's a kind of endless question. And the Amazonian idea—it's just it's just the initial move. And the Freudian idea—the process is unending. What if you just want to sort of live your life, and at some point say, "Okay, we cannot just be self-interrogating always." I want to get things done. I want to have an alliance. I want to get my liberation and be done with that. And that yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I I don't think that that. Thinking need, and typically is paralyzing. You do encounter that, you know, whatever the classic Hamlet problem, mm-hmm. can't, can't bring myself to act because I have to think about all the different possibilities and ramifications and implications of everything. So the so the moment passes. Um, that's certainly a, a, a phenomenon, it's certainly a, a thing, but it doesn't seem to me that it needs to be, or that it is kind of characteristic, that is a necessary implication of intellectual activity. Uh, Because the fact is that we're always acting on provisional grounds. You're always acting on the best insight, the best information, the best sense that you have. The point is to remain open to shift, to change your mind, to see things from a different angle. It doesn't inhibit action. What I think it does inhibit is a kind of fanatic certainty about Mm -hmm. the correctness of your action. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, you know, one of the reasons why again you often have the more informed wing of the political spectrum be less politically effective than the fanatic mm-hmm. um ideological completely certain um segment you know the and, and in america you get the the right is often way, way more effective um even with less information like the climate deniers and the and and the um hard um Anti-science uh, can be more effective politically organized because they're certain um, than some people says. Yeah, well, the vaccines are effective, but you know they're they're eighty-five percent effective, and they reduce mortality rates. Here, all the charts, but they're not. They, they you can still get COVID uh, from them. And yes, you know a small percentage of people have side effects. You know when you reality is messy, and when you are alert and 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 aware of that, it can make you less effective. That when you are just ignorant or, or willful ignorance to the facts.
0: But in your book, it's very clear that you don't find this debilitating and you say there's a complexity of the world and these, some of these books have helped you to find a way through them that doesn't lock you into a kind of essentialism or that makes you feel, oh my God, I'm overthinking everything, Allah la Hamlet. So you, find, you found something in these texts. And I wanna get in a moment to kind of the trajectory of your book from Freud to Gandhi, because the book also maps a kind of shift in the idea of what the great books are. You talk about your own effort, successful ultimately to get Gandhi into the core curriculum at Columbia, but you seem to have drawn when you were initially in that program. I guess in you know at Columbia as a freshman, you thought there was something really exhilarating and liberating, and it wasn't just thinking for its own sake. It wasn't paralyzing. Um, yeah, that's right. It was it was empowering.
1: It was it gave me a sense of agency. And probably the most important thing it did for me was to introduce me into, I guess one can call it the life of the mind, but there was a a sphere of activity, of being, of agency, that was unconstrained by the kind of material limitations, resource limitations. I mean, I found myself as a freshman at Columbia, surrounded by people who were better educated than I was, had more resources than I did. Um, and in this intellectual activity, I found a level playing field. Um, they were better educated than I. They had more money than me, but they were no better at reading the Iliad or at grappling with the ideas that Plato is, is putting in front of us than I was. They were, not be- they were not better equipped than I was to grapple with the fundamental issues that we face in common as human beings. So it gave me a kind of sphere of agency that in some way, in some way mitigated the material limitations that I that I came into mm-hmm. college with.
0: And you ultimately, you went on to get, you got a master's degree and also a PhD from Columbia University. And you wrote about, as I understand it, the link between uh, transcendentalism and abolitionism, which is kind of the two extremes of sort of transcendentalism. You would think that that is really just, an exercise of thinking for its own sake, in a way, in abolitionism, you can't really, you can, but probably not get much more concrete than that, is to end yeah. the institution that propped up the economy yeah. of America. Yeah, wait, th- th-
1: that's a good example in which these two things can work together. The, the abolitionist movement, and this moves us close, close to Douglas, but the American abolitionist movement, um, the, the, the phase of abolition, abolitionism that precipitated the Civil War really get started in the early 1830s around the figure of William Lloyd Garrison, who is a religious thinker and a kind of firebrand, who is preaching a kind of moralist and absolutist anti-slavery position. So absolutist that William Lloyd Garrison wanted to leave the Union, wanted to Massachusetts to secede immediately. His banner was no union with slaveholders. He called the American constitution a pact with Satan and a covenant with hell. Um, and that's the movement which Douglas first
0: becomes politically activated in. Well, me, it a, yeah. Wait, I want to keep this quote for a moment. What does Lloyd Garrison call the constitution here? You know, just to sort of say how provocative a he packed, is in the 1930s. A pact, yeah, a pact with Satan and a covenant with hell. Okay, and then does he <laughs> does he throw it out and says we got to reinvent our country? Or how <laughs> it does burns he burns it? He it burns-, burns
1: it publicly.
0: He okay. burns the constitution publicly. <laughs> okay. And
1: he says, "So perish all compromise with tyranny, because the union was a compromise with tyranny, which he rejected. Now, because of this, Garrisonians don't participate in politics. They don't vote. Mm -hmm. They don't believe in the congressional mechanisms for reform. They Mm -hmm. they think that the union is rotten and illegitimate, and that to participate in the democratic mechanisms put in place by the constitution is to legitimate to recognize and legitimate and support the system so that's garrison now after the 1850 fugitive slave act which the fugitive slave act which is a terrible inhumane just barbaric act of congress but it was a boon to the abolitionist cause it was like throwing gasoline on the abolitionist embers that were burning in politics and the abolitionist movement explodes and sort
0: of becomes mainstream. To so give us a sentence on the Fugitive Slave Act, what does it change for Americans everywhere? The Fugitive Slave Act put teeth behind a provision in the
1: constitution for the rendition of slaves. So if a slave escaped his or her master <coughs> and went to a free state, in the constitution says it says that the master has the right to go and retrieve that and that the state authorities cannot kind of impede that. They have to, in fact, collaborate. But this act becomes, it's really unenforceable from the beginning. And there's a there's a 1793 free justice slave act that tries to put teeth behind it. But uh, states are very clever in passing uh, personal liberty laws and other provisions that, um, for example, force, if you're claiming that some person in a free community is your escaped slave, you have to go before a jury of local peers and convince them and substantiate for them. But of course, the jury in this community is likely to be sympathetic to the slave and to not give you your day in court or, 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 um, so they made the law essentially unenforceable in 1850, <clears throat> as part of a compromise having to do with the incorporation of territories acquired in the Mexican American War. Um, one of the provisions of the compromise that's worked out is putting very serious legal and military and budget teeth behind that act, mm-hmm. where now there was a federal force um, with the power and the resources to go hunt down slaves. Now no, it was no longer the issue of the, of the master hiring a slave catcher to go after in the North. Now the master just, could just show up in the city in the North and deputize immediately all law enforcement, the police, the the even citizens on the street you had to now the whole every american citizen and every facet of american law enforcement was now at the disposal and under under the penalty of un, under legal penalties mm-hmm. to enforce the future slave act it was an outrage and in boston it, it immediately caused causes huge problems you know there are there there they're future slaves that are kept in court or in the jail in courts and there are breakings to to save them there are one backtracking one moment back to the transcendentalist abolitionists after the View to slave act when abolitionism goes mainstream the the leadership of the movement falls out of william lloyd garrison who's not political not mainstream is a real radical and a minority kind of purist um zealot and the movement the leadership of the movement falls in hands of transcendentalists of (coughs) um people in Boston around uh, Emerson Emerson himself, but some of his closest associates, people like Theodore Parker or uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, uh, Thoreau himself. Um, The leading abolitionists in Massachusetts and in much of the North are very closely linked to the uh, the abolitionists. If I can ask Um, you to be a
0: teacher for a moment, give us a kind of that a uh, loose definition of transcendentalism and then for our listeners i've had uh, a, a podcast on emerson where we talked about actually his abolitionist stance and mm-hmm. on henry Great. david Thoreau as well but if you can give us a sense in the tension here between people who are largely known in the canon now these are just sort of esoteric thinkers and then the other ones are people who are really changing the country through yeah. incredible political courage
1: yeah Thank you, and
0: thank you for that prompt. I, I forget my audience sometimes. <laughs> I'm the audience, and I I, I I I would be if you asked me to define transcendentalism. I would I, I'd let I'd let you do it rather. <laughs> but you can think of transcendentalism as a as a
1: fundamentally a an outgrowth of a religious reform
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, in uh, Massachusetts. it it's it born among Unitarian ministers in Massachusetts. Unitarians. Are themselves a sort of um, falling away from congregational Puritan orthodoxy. The Massach- in, in kind of the Massachusetts clergy, there is a, a kind of liberal intellectual enlightenment uh, movement that questions some of the traditional beliefs of, of, of Christianity, like the veracity of miracles, the divinity of Jesus, the Trinity. I mean, some very basic Christian theological commitments that don't stand up to rational scrutiny. And these ministers say, you know, we, we've we been misunderstanding Christianity and, and we need to think about it different. Those are essentially the Unitarians. Among Unitarians, there is a kind of even an extension of this uh, reform movement. And in some ways, a rejection of the strict rationalism, enlightenment ideas of the Unitarians. And a kind of longing again for a kind of electric, life transformative, direct contact with divinity. Um, Not by adopting all the dead dogmas, but by somehow recovering what Emerson called an original relationship with the universe. So the transcendentalists are very much into nature, um, into, uh, sometimes they're called American romanticists because of their skepticism about reason giving you ultimately satisfying answers about the world. Uh, they're very interested in intuition in the sense that every individual can have a kind of an intuitive connection to the fundamental truth of the, of the universe. Um, and that's what transcendentalist refers to that, you know, their, their, their sense that the world um, was a kind of the surface of a transcendent order. Mm-hmm. to which we had access mm-hmm. intuitively that if you just got quiet and looked and pay attention and sort of um got over yourself the the dissolve some of your of the egotism and ideological rigidity that both religion and culture reinforce then you could have this access to this other deeper order yeah. of existence um and that's a lot of what emerson is about and a lot of ministers who leave the Unitarian Church um, and form they form a kind of a literary society. Um, and then <clears throat> a lot of that energy after 1850 goes straight into abolitionist organizing. Um, these people become the radicals who also who challenge the legalism of abolition on very similar grounds that they challenge the legalism of the of 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 historical Christianity. Um, so Again, you have an example there of kind of intellectual, f- serious thinking yeah. that
0: instead of moving you, removing you from action, yeah. plunges you right into the action. And what you're saying about Garrison is um, this kind of fierce uh, critique of the constitution in the name of a deeper freedom or in the name of a greater truth in a way. I think they're right. saying America is kind of lost and then they have access to something that should be self-evident to everyone. <laughs> yeah this compromise should have never been entered into yeah I mean one of it's funny how we see versions of
1: that debate now the The prevailing judicial philosophy of interpretation is originalism, sometimes called strict constructionism, but originalism is a legalistic, formal commitment to the letter of the law. Forget the spirit of the law. The spirit is inscrutable, it's inaccessible. our only kind of Way to keep our bearings, to have some kind of order, some kind of uh, uh, integrity in legal interpretation is to stick to the original text right. of the word. Well, that's, that's the prevalent dominant view now, but it's been prevalent and dominant for maybe 30, 40 years. You've got periods in American history where the emphasis is on the spirit of the law. They say, you know, well, this is what the letter says, but it's put together by, by imperfect people with unanticipated consequences and what we need to do is to reconnect with the kind of fountain of principles of justice and humanity that animates the original so you go try to capture the spirit rather than the letter and this is a version of the debate that the transcendentalists are having with the unitarians and that the puritan antinomians are having with the puritan orthodoxy it just pervades the culture
0: as I, I'm going to cross-reference another episode I interviewed Erwin Chemerinsky, who was the dean of the uh, University of California School of Law that's been recently renamed, and he just published a book called Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of, or, uh, of uh, or, Originalism, where he's looking mm-hmm. at this debate, whether the Constitution <coughs> is the true text, and what's interesting to me always about these debates is we as literary scholars and as every, everyday readers, we know a text is not entirely stable and can be traced back to what did they mean at that year in 1791 right. or whatever it is. And right. so, so I refer yeah. our audience to the Chem- Chemerinsky episode. Bridge. And I, w- I want to get back to something else though, because what you just explained is that there is actually not the strict division between thinking and doing, between reflection and action, between pondering life versus getting things done. And when you arrived at Columbia, you said there was a kind of implicit idea, as you know, a recent immigrant coming from you know an underprivileged background. You come from Queens, you go across the river to Columbia. They're all these you know pretty privileged rich kids. They can indulge in these classes, and you're supposed to become an engineer. And then your life is reordered in a way. And then to jump ahead later on, you actually manage this entire program for years and years and years, and I'm kind of interested how you thought you switched from, you actually chose a life that, you know, you seem quite happy in, so this set you on a path that you probably didn't see when you were 18 years old.
1: I certainly didn't see when I was 18 years old. When I, when it was, <clears throat> when I was approaching graduation from college, um, I mean, I had been turned on to ideas, to thinking, to writing, to reading, and I couldn't believe that it was senior year, that I had another nine months to do this and then I was going to have to go out in the world and and, and and leave the classroom, leave reading and start working or something. Um, and I remember going to my academic advisor. I was a comparative literature major, but I had taken a lot of philosophy courses and I was within within reach of doing a double major in comparative literature and philosophy. Comparative literature is the longest major at Columbia at the time because it required two foreign languages. <coughs> and. Um, I went to my academic advisor and said, you know, can I have another year at Columbia so that I can complete a second major in philosophy? And she was like, no way. Uh, Columbia and New York State are not going to pay another year of Columbia tuition so that you can get a second major in philosophy. Um, So then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to apply to graduate school. Um, And, you know, I did not know this when I was doing it, but when you apply to graduate school, what you do is you your application, your personal statement is essentially a research proposal. The personal statement is a uh, statement of the questions that you want to explore and study and investigate as a researcher, as a PhD student. I did not have such questions, such defined fields of investigation and corpus of, of, of material that I wanted to, to research so that I could produce a PhD dissertation. I just wanted to keep following my curiosities, reading, thinking, writing about big ideas. So I looked around, I looked at philosophy programs, um, realized that American philosophy was dominated by analytic philosophy, kind of a, the kind of philosophy that was least interesting to me. Um, and then I looked at English. <clears throat> and English seemed like the Wild West. Nobody knew what English was about. Nobody knew what the corpus was, what the critical methods were, what it is that you were supposed to master as, a, as an English PhD. So I said, this is it, this is the field for somebody who doesn't know what they want. And I put together a very shoddy application to graduate school, but but managed to squeak squeak by and enter the Columbia program. One of the reasons that I wanted to go to the Columbia program is because I knew that a couple of years into the PhD program, I would have the opportunity to teach in the core curriculum, that very program that had been so transformative for me. And so it happened. I, Third or fourth year of graduate school, I taught my first literature humanities humanities class, and it was an absolute thrill. I loved it. The students loved it. It was, it was like heaven. Um, I could not believe that this could be a possible kind of profession. This one's out is not quite a profession uh, because teaching general education courses like that, you don't get tenure doing that, and there are no jobs doing that. Th- that's another story. Um, <clears throat> but I was really so committed and so um, invested in the core curriculum. Now I was not only a teacher in the core curriculum, I was an alumnus of the college. Um, So I began to get involved in kind of the curricular committees that oversaw it, always took an active role in discussions and conversations. Um, When I graduated with my PhD, that uh, right around that time, Columbia started a new postdoc program where people can come and teach for a couple of years exclusively in the core curriculum mm-hmm. as, a, as a faculty member, not a tenure track, but as a faculty member. So I applied and got one of those positions. So then I was teaching full-time in the core, fresh out of grad school, continued to be involved in the core curriculum, organized a conference at Columbia. I was curious how other, how other schools did this. So I just kind of organized a, a group of other instructors did some research about how you know what St. John's did, what Stanford did, what Yale did, and um got some money to bring all these people together to spend two days at Columbia, in some ways for my own education, to learn how other people faced and, and answered the questions that that I was lively lively engaged, engaged with in a lively way. Well, uh sometime after that, towards the end of that appointment, um the the previous director of the program, which is an administrative position, it's an associate dean of the college, was leaving. And I was essentially invited to apply to the the position, which I did. Um, And so I ended up leading, directing the program, being the chief administrator for the program while while continuing to teach in it. And I did that for 10 years. And and, and that was really a profound education into all of the debates and institutional structures and impediments and politics that sort of frame the humanities and frame undergraduate education in America.
0: I want to touch on one thing from this experience that you described, where you go from being a student as a freshman to becoming an instructor as a a graduate student then getting your own PhD and then becoming the administrator for a long time, where you were part of all the discussions, which are internal to one institution. Is this the right way to do it? Should we keep on doing it? uh, Or should we just scrap it? To the larger cultural debates what does great books mean? Is it just a bunch of dead white males or is it supposed to be something else? You have a very funny footnote about a renowned New York Times columnist who said, this is not really Western books because, and then they sort of defended themselves having done zero research saying, oh, you're teaching the Holy Quran, therefore not Western. (laughs) But what I really liked in your discussion of your time there, you said you spent a lot of time listening to students. You clearly had Two roles, several roles you were the administrator, you were a teacher, you also had been a student in the program and you come from an what's called an underrepresented background let's say you're from the Dominican Republic and some of the students brought those questions to you that are very alive in the culture today so this is just a bunch of dead white males. why are we having to read this and then the last chapter of your book is also not quite a dead white male. It's Gandhi. It's Mahatma Gandhi. Great. So it's very different. But can you say a little bit about that? You listened and it, I like that you actually seem to listen with real genuine interest to say they're bringing a concern and I'm a teacher. I would like to hear their concern rather than yeah. shutting them down saying, you don't know yet what's good for you. Let me impose. This right. And
1: that was really key. I mean, I so often students organize uh, protests or opinions based on a sense of justice and a sense of fairness and a sometimes simplistic sometimes poorly informed but but animated by this kind of thirst for justice and so often they are kind of dismissed and condescended to and um huge mistake and and, and i especially i am sensitive to how many people who support traditional curricula are guilty of that condescension mm-hmm. of that um you know this this kind of Image that undergraduates are fragile and snowflakes and kind of spoiled brats who just want affirmation and 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 praise and uh, I
0: think think it's. I think I want to add. I think I want to add one thing. Sorry, Marcel. I think I want to add one thing. I think the criticism is also, and I think you're right. People who defend a traditional curriculum say those kids are snowflakes, or they want identification. They want to see themselves reflected and they can't find themselves. And what you just described (laughs) in the last 40 minutes, you found yourself, parts of yourself in Plato and Augustine and Freud. We haven't talked about Gandhi. So it wasn't that you said, I need to read something. I mean, how could I identify with Augustine? You know, like uh, it's not exactly in my lifetime, my life experience, but the students are also putting pressure on this curriculum saying, I don't see myself here, right? Exactly. And they're right to do that. Um, that is there is a
1: serious problem with the traditional canon. It is white, it is male, it is elite. um and I think we know enough, Marx is kind of the big revelation in this, that your ideological constructions of the world are going to be informed by your class position. you can't you can't work yourself out of that. um so a, there, th- those are big and serious problems and students want to know uh, why is it that we select these texts and we say these texts ought to command the attention of every student. Uh, when there are no black people there, when there are no women there, when there are no people that, that, that represent kind of the struggles of the everyday person that we're committed to and that we as a society want to advance. Absolutely legitimate questions that, that, that we need to take seriously and answer, not simply brush them off. Um, There is a um, kind of a second set of problems, which comes from the fact that this tradition of classics of the canon has been embraced and deployed as a tool of white supremacism, as a tool of colonial exploitation, as a tool of conquest of often brown people. So there's a whole other also legacy that this is loaded with. So, when students come with those concerns, you better take them seriously and you better have good answers to why those texts are still worth reading despite those, on the one hand, failings, on the other hand, accretions of misuse. Um, And what I found was that when you had this honest conversation and you brought students into thinking about, well, we want to understand the contemporary world, including structural racism, including patriarchy, including colonialism, including capitalism. We want to understand this. Where did it come from? How did we get to where we are? Uh, What are the ideological roots, foundations, antecedents, both of the oppressive structures that we want to dismantle, but also of of our desire to dismantle them, of our perception that they are unjust, of our perception that that we should somehow change them. That reform movements, that 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 impulse to change the world in the name of some ideal, where do those ideals come from? Well, it turns out that both those ideals and the structures that we're trying to dismantle come from the same place. And we are going to be most effective actors and most effective effective interpreters of that temp- contemporary reality by pairing by paying serious attention to that tradition. Um, The other thing that's really crucial to this conversation is that we can't stop that study and tradition in the 19th century, just at the point where women and other previously excluded voices begin to enter. We need to bring that conversation forward through the 19th century, through the 20th century, and even spend some time talking directly about some of the issues that are really burning today before us. Um, So I think once once you got students thinking about those big questions, then you see that the attention to the classics, attention to the canon, is is a is foundational to a certain kind of inquiry that actually they care deeply about and which they want to do in depth at precisely the depth that attention to the early step to the to the early text enables. Um, now, you know, there's a sometimes you have to get through a lot of listening, a lot of conversation to get to that, because there are there are political investments. We live in such a polarized world that people it's very hard for people to listen to each other if if they if you're coming at it from different points of view, right? If you come at it from different ends, it's right. very hard to then have an actual conversation. Then it's just about defeating the other, about owning the other, about ridiculing the other, about, about exposing them as retrograde you know troglodytes of either racism or progressive hysteria so it's very hard to have those conversations and and one thing that i learned very early on is that you had to build trust and a relationship with the students particularly students who had these concerns mm-hmm. so i would be constantly talking and listening and developing these kinds of relationships i took it to be very much part of my job as a teacher to, you know, when you're a teacher in a core classroom, you cannot do liberal arts unless you establish this kind of bond of trust, affection, kind of mutual concern. That's primary. If you can't do that as a teacher, you can't have a liberal education. Um, And I saw my role as director and dealing with students to be the same kind of thing, where I had to build a relationship with them that would create the conduits, would create the 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 fiber optic cables through which we we're gonna communicate.
0: Yeah. Also, when listening to you, it's really super helpful to think through what I struggle with a lot of how to keep these books. Why, how do we justify that? I think one thing I heard from you is that there's a sometimes there's enormous power and sort of bestowed on certain texts when a university assigns them. When a teacher assigns them in the classroom, you think, okay, that must have something that I have to read now, this kind of um, bestowal of privilege. And then, but what you're saying, this is not indoctrination. We're not reading Augustine or Plato to agree with everything. We're actually teaching and we're examining what these texts have done over the last 2000 years or whatever time period it may be. It's not, here's Plato, this is the truth, you must swallow it. It's more that we have to examine and grapple with these texts. And in your book, your the fourth chapter is on Gandhi. And can you say something about your encounter with that? And then also that I think the result is that Gandhi is now part of the great books uh, curriculum yeah. at Columbia University. So that's a success. So yay, <laughs> yay for, your, for your time as a, as a director of that. But can you say something how Gandhi figures into this and you start out with yeah. how it relates to the so-called Western tradition?
1: Yeah, I started reading Gandhi on my own, um, kind of my own curiosity. I had by then been teaching for years um, in the core curriculum, hadn't taken on the job yet as director of the core. Um, So I felt a pretty solid grounding in kind of the Western tradition, the classics, the the worldview, the wisdom, the political insights and evolution of the Western tradition. But I also knew that that was not all that there are other great traditions of wisdom, of ethical, political thought and insight into the human condition that are not in conversation, that have kind of independent lineages from from this one that I knew very well. Um, So I was curious to, (coughs) excuse me, I was curious to uh, educate myself a little bit, to broaden myself. So I started reading Gandhi because Gandhi is a, a unusual, extraordinary figure in a lot of dimensions, but one of them is that he is, Totally immersed in this tradition of Western jurisprudence, Western ethical philosophical thinking. It's a big, big reader, educated in England as a as a lawyer, um, but a deeply religious man, a a you know a Orthodox Hindu, rooted, grounded, committed one hundred percent to this other tradition of ethical, political, communal, um, religious thought. So um, Gandhi was a complete revelation for me in opening up this, giving me an initial entry point into a whole different way of thinking about questions that I've been thinking for years. Gandhi was very personally meaningful for me, too. Even though I gave up Christianity as a young person, I've never lost a taste, a longing for a kind of spiritual inquiry, a kind of way of understanding myself and my existential condition as a human being in society, in this world. And Gandhi was also very, very uh, nutritive in in my own kind of spiritual development. Um, I began to teach Gandhi as a way to end the sophomore contemporary civilization curriculum on my own. There's a little bit of uh, leeway every instructor has to maybe add a text or two. So I added Gandhi. And other people in the core curriculum began to do it as well. Um, and we sort of began to kind of get together and talk about how, how well Gandhi worked and to kind of talk to other people about doing it. And and over over a period of, of years, Gandhi had become kind of a natural. Mm. Um, possibility for inclusion in the required curriculum and when the when the I, I guess I think it was in 2012 when one of the periodic syllabus revisions came up I remember how how remarkable it was that there was pretty complete unanimity there was there was virtually no debate about yeah. putting Gandhi in there was certainly nobody opposed the only you know whenever you add something you have to figure out where you trim elsewhere yeah. um so there was that discussion, but but um Gandhi has been there, and I think it's a tremendous way to end, both because it alerts students to the fact that the Western tradition they have studied in the core is not the end all and be all. There is a whole other um, there are whole other kind of conceptual universes for them to explore and encounter on the questions, approaches to the questions that they've been facing. Um <clears throat> And there's some, also something more specific about Gandhi that I, that I appreciate a lot, which is Gandhi has this commitment to, above all, the notion of truth, but also human virtue, morality, nonviolence. He has this profoundly redemptive view of the possibilities for human transcendence, for human achievement of justice, for human achievement of a kind of virtue and goodness in this world that has political implications. And so much of the European 20th and 21st century revolves around dismantling notions of truth and virtue and yeah. excellence and a kind of ascendance of a kind of crude philosophy of power, uh, the, 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 the dismantling of, of any grounding notion except power, in mm-hmm. politics, society. Mm-hmm personal relations as being ultimately struggles for power without any grounding and any other transcendent value. And Gandhi, I think it's such a breath of fresh air because it mm-hmm. reconstitutes, recuperates some of these notions that for me and for other students, I find absolutely foundational in, uh, in living, living in the world and uh, for the possibilities of working for a better world
0: yeah what you just said is really a a very moving and also really concrete that you said he gives us an idea of transcendence in the human in the real world in the day-to-day in our own practices and what you said that a lot of the sort of curriculum shifts toward a kind of kind of spare analysis of power which is probably a somewhat reductive reading of Marx all the way to Foucault but I when I've taught Foucault, for example, who's sort of the go-to choice for power, um, and uh, there's a, there's a there moment in Foucault when he talks about literature or art, where he says, this is yet unknown to us. And he leaves the book and you're sort of thinking, wait, wait, <laughs> aren't you supposed to be the one who maps power everywhere in us, out? And then there are moments when he's in touch with something else. To yeah. Gandhi, this something else is not the ineffable or the religious, but it's actually in us. It's in us, it's, it's, it's earthly is grounded, yeah. is rooted
1: in the absolute most quotidian everyday ways of living. How you eat, how you sit, how you address your children, how you take in the natural world. It is, uh, it's, it, it's so powerful about Gandhi that, that it, um, it can really, if you take Gandhi seriously, it can really transform, inform the way that you inhabit, your everyday reality in a in a way that I find just
0: invaluable in my own life. Roswell, yeah. I'm going to uh, I'm going to end on this because it's really powerful. And the chapter on Gandhi is you know worth it alone for the book. So this is your book, Rescuing Socrates: How the Great Books Changed My Life and How They Matter for and Why They Matter for a New Generation, published by Princeton. Um, and I just want to recommend it. It's this kind of it's both your personal, very personal. Um, sort of biography, but then also a very spirited defense for the imminence of the value of these great works in Augustine, Plato, Freud, and Gandhi as examples of what reading can do for us and how we can be transformed. Thank you, Ulred. Really a pleasure to have this conversation I, with you. I really appreciate it. So I want to thank so our listeners. You can find us on Think About It. I want to thank uh, you. And then um, let me just end this right. we recording, but don't leave right now.